Have you ever uh, continuously cleaned your glasses or your contacts because you're in denial that you probably need reading glasses? I'm sure it's my contacts. Well, there are many relationships in the Bible that for many of us are so deeply connected with our understanding of Scripture that mentioning their names bring a flood of emotions and theology that rush to our hearts and our minds. These are friendships, these are families, these are marriages that we look to as examples which encourage us in our walks with the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, There's Jesus and the Twelve. There's Joseph and Mary. And which of us can speak of brotherly love without thinking of the relationship between David and Jonathan? Redemption and selfless love come to mind with Ruth and Boaz. How about the epitome of a ministerial power couple, Priscilla and Aquila? Well, this morning, we begin a new series in 1 Timothy that presents to us another significant relationship in the Scriptures, and that is of Paul and Timothy. Like many of the people I just mentioned, we don't really have a detailed glimpse of their interactions, but the love that they have for one another becomes evident. And what makes this relationship so special for us is that it is not just an example of Christian love, which it is, but it is an example of two men committed to the ministry of Jesus Christ and how they encourage and sharpen one another within that ministry. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his dear friend Timothy. It is a letter that he writes to encourage and instruct Timothy on the qualities and needs of leadership in the local church. For Timothy specifically, as he serves as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. Now, having already been taught by Paul as his companion for 15 years, over the next few months we will see that there is not a lot of doctrinal, at least foundational doctrinal teaching in this epistle because there's no need. Timothy knows it. But there is a lot of pastoral encouragement and instruction as Timothy deals with many of the issues of the growing early church. It is because of this letter and Timothy's faithfulness, that much of the growing pains of the Christian church were dealt with within its first few decades, such that we do not have to struggle with them today, at least not blindly. But the reality is, for all of us, whether in the early church or today or any time that will exist prior to eternity, ministry can be difficult. Ministry can be tough. And on the one hand, it can be easy to overlook or disregard the difficult of ministry because you say, well, I'm not in full-time ministry. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a Bible teacher. I don't even have an official role in the church. I'm not an usher. I'm not a deacon. To think that you don't need to be involved in such things and receiving, but not really giving. And to be quite frank, It is often those people who make ministry difficult for those who are involved because they demand much with little experience to understand the challenge of what they are demanding or sensitivity to it. On the other hand, there are those who are not in full-time ministry but know full well about the difficulties of serving because they are 
Well, serving. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, I want to encourage you this morning by on the one hand challenge you, challenging you to serve more, while on the other hand encouraging you in the difficulties of your current service. And as I in- introduce you to Paul and Timothy, in the first two verses of First Timothy, I will also be giving you five facts, five facts to remember to encourage you to fulfill your ministry. In other words, five truths that we learn from Paul and Timothy that will encourage us to get more involved in ministry or to start getting involved in ministry, or if you already are, to excel still more and do the work of the ministry and finish well despite the challenges and potential discouragement. Five facts to remember to encourage you to fulfill your ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our first fact to remember is the commander. The commander. He begins by introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It is called 1 Timothy. It is not written by Timothy. It is written to Timothy by Paul. We are mostly familiar with Paul. He is the most prolific writer of the New Testament and thus is probably the most influential person in your life outside of God himself. Previously known as Saul, he was named after King Saul, who was the most significant individual in Jewish history from Paul's specific tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Saul grew up and lived a very zealous, orthodox Jewish life. He gained quite a bit of reputation among the Jews for his zeal and commitment to Judaism, but he also gained a reputation among the Christians for his persecution of the church. And we read of his conversion in Acts chapter 9, in which Jesus identifies himself as the one that Saul is persecuting. Saul says, who are you? And he says, I'm the one you're persecuting. And after this point in time, Saul, whom Jesus renames Paul, takes that same zeal he had as a persecutor of Christians and fulfills his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ for Christians. So that's Paul. We know that part of his ministry was the penning of these 13 epistles or letters which are part of the New Testament, the bulk of the New Testament. And in 1 Timothy, he begins, as he does with nine of his 13 New Testament letters, by referring to himself as an apostle, specifically an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle refers to someone who is sent out, who is sent forth as a representative of someone else. And this representation would be with the proper credentials, the proper authority of the one who is sending him. As one commentator puts it, the verb form of this Greek word apostle would be this, I quote, to send off on a commission to do something as one's personal representative with credentials furnished. Now, we know this is true of all the apostles. 
And when it comes to being an apostle or representative of Jesus Christ, as Paul says he is here, we need to ask, what is the commissioning and what are the credentials? Now, the commissioning is to send the gospel or to take the gospel to sinners. This was the primary role of the apostles as God used them to build and establish the church. They subsequently equipped those same sinners who accepted the gospel and became followers of Christ. But what about the credentials? For a true apostle, of which there are none existing today except in heaven, there were certain requirements. First, he had to have been appointed by Jesus Christ. Now, we know this is the case of the twelve who were handpicked by Jesus in person when he walked on the earth. And Paul was designated an apostle after Jesus was gone, after he ascended into heaven. But we know that he still called Paul directly, and we can again read about that in Acts chapter 9. And it was at that time that Paul also fulfilled the second requirement to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. You remember after Jesus' resurrection, he revealed himself only to certain people. We have clear evidence in the Gospels that even in his resurrected physical body, he walked around and he could make it so that people did not realize who he actually was. He revealed himself to the, the apostles, the twelve, as well as others. And in that miraculous calling from heaven, he revealed himself to Jesus Christ as well. So even though Paul often referred to as the 13th apostle, was called after Jesus was in heaven. We still know that Jesus did that, called him, commissioned him, sent him through miraculous means, and so he did interact with the resurrected Jesus. Now, as you have probably heard a very similar introduction many times, as I or other pastors start a new series in one of the Pauline, we call them, written by Paul, epistles, you've probably heard that the reason Paul introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to remind them of his authority as a messenger, as an apostle of God. But this is a personal letter to his friend Timothy, who certainly does not need to be reminded of who Paul is. He's not receiving this letter and going, oh, that Paul, the Apostle Paul. He knows who it's from. So why introduce himself this way when he's writing to Timothy? Well, there are several possible reasons, and we also under, need to understand that it is safe to assume that in a time where there were no phones or mail, uh, as we know it, there are no email, faxes, things like that, telex, remember that? Uh, What's that thing they used to use? The, the, you know, any of that. No electricity, okay? We can safely assume that this was not, these 13 letters were not the only letters Paul wrote. This is how he spoke to his friends and the churches. It's just that we have 13 letters that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and our Scripture. So there were undoubtedly other letters that he wrote that were just personal, that were not Scripture, that were not canonized, that were possibly not even teaching anything biblical. So within this letter, written to Timothy, again the question is, why introduce himself as the apostle when Timothy would have known this very well? 
Well, there's several possible reasons. First is that in God's sovereignty, this letter would be read by many others aside from Timothy. We're reading it now. Millions of others have read it. And this might have been despite Paul's intentions or even awareness. And by the way, God using something despite someone's awareness or intentions is a sermon in itself right there. Second, as we will see over the next several months, Timothy is going through a very difficult time in his ministry. There's a lot of difficult stuff going on in Ephesus. And so the full weight of Paul's apostleship behind him would be helpful and encouraging and a good reminder to say, yes, you can confront the false teachers. Yes, you can address these people who are sinning in the church. You have my full apostolic authority as a messenger of Jesus Christ as I teach you and share with you what to do. Thirdly, This may simply be a reminder to Timothy that says, hey, listen, Timothy, I know you're going through a difficult time, and I know that difficult time is solely because of your commitment to pastoral ministry. We're all messengers of God. Be encouraged and run the race alongside me. A fourth possibility, it may simply show that this isn't just a casual letter to a friend or a coworker but has specific instruction for the church and specifically church leaders that carries apostolic authority, which is also the authority of God himself. Now, whatever the reason, the specific title that Paul gives himself is a good reminder of who is in charge, and that is Jesus. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And whether an apostle in the first century or a layperson in the 21st, We are all what we are because of our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded today that whether it's saying hello, whether it's unloading a van, whether it's passing out a bulletin, or whether it's preaching God's holy word, we are all pastors, deacons, elders, husbands, wives, sound guys, ushers, prayer warriors, greeters, church attenders, encouragers, brothers, sisters, whatever, of Christ Jesus, just as Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. You may not have been called in a miraculous way as Paul was. You may not have been put Jesus' physical hand on your shoulder and said, come, follow me, drop everything and follow me, but you have been commanded by Jesus Christ as part of your salvation in the Scriptures to serve and be whatever you are of Christ Jesus. Not of yourselves, not of Grace Church of the Bay Area, not of your families, not of your perceived obligations, not of your country, of Jesus Christ. He's in charge. We do it for Him. And that means we must, first of all, do the work of the ministry because he has called all Christians to serve. But it also means that when we serve, we must do it for him and we must do it his way. And what's more, he has specifically called and gifted us. Look at the next phrase in verse 1. According to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. 
And that brings us to our second fact to remember, to encourage you to fulfill your ministry, the commission. The commission. Not only is Paul serving under the command of Jesus Christ, but he was specifically chosen and appointed for a particular ministry. Now keep in mind that this phrase, this whole introduction, he's describing his apostleship here, not his salvation, not his Christianity, his specific ministry. Now this phrase, according to the commandment, means he is under order from God our Savior and Jesus Christ. And Paul understands that Jesus himself called Paul to speak on his behalf, to represent his interests, and to do so for his honor, just like you and I. And it may seem a bit strange to use the term commandment in this context. We think of the Ten Commandments, but the word was a familiar one in Paul's world, the Greco-Roman world. It was recognized, that word, as having to do with divine or royal decree. It has the same idea of the phrase that you may hear today, by order of, that we may hear in reference to royalty, by order of His Majesty the King. And when an order is made by a royal, then it must be obeyed. And this is infinitely more true when the decree is made by God Himself. You are to serve. The Apostle's calling was very clear. Again, you have the record of Jesus handpicking and verbally calling the twelve. And again, not physically present, Jesus does the same with Paul. Now because of that, Christians today can easily think that we're just following Jesus without any real specific calling or obligation for ministry because He hasn't orally told us what to do as He did with the Apostles. And many today have difficulty even determining what their spiritual gift is. In turn, many have difficulty determining their specific ministry. And often this lack of clarity can lead to a hesitant and half-hearted commitment to serve or even as an excuse to not serve at all. But what you need to understand is that Christianity is not like that tour you join when you're vacationing in a foreign land. You follow the tour guide. He usually holds up a flag or something with your specific tour's name on it so you know who to follow. You listen as best you can. And if you stop to do your own thing, go to a shop as the tour continues on, you leave the group, so be it. That's totally fine as long as you're back on the bus on time. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is being handpicked for a journey for the sake of fully engaging with what the tour guide tells you to do. You don't just try to listen, you listen. If you stray from the group, it doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole group because you have been given an assignment for the good of the whole group. In fact, you're not allowed to stray, and you are responsible for every single word that the tour guide speaks. Now, this is an incredible encouragement, at the same time a very weighty obligation. We must get rid of this tour group mentality and fully commit to the Lord, not just in our own personal walks, but in how we serve the church as a whole. 
And as with Paul, your specific ministry, whatever that may be, has its ultimate basis in the command, the calling, the instruction of God. And as we continue, we see that Paul gives us two sources of that command, which also serve as two incredible, mind-blowing reasons to fulfill your ministry. First, the command comes from God our Savior. We are reminded that we are not just following a great man, an accomplished leader, a like-minded politician. We are following and specifically called to service by the one who has saved us from our sins. What a thought. What a thought. We think about God's Word and we think about the reality of Christian life. And it's so normal to us because it's who we are. It's, it's the plan of God. But understand that Jesus did not merely orchestrate a plan of salvation that involves sacrificing His own life to free us from the destitution of slavery to evil. But then He went on. He allowed us, He called us to know Him, to learn from Him, to copy Him, to serve Him. This is a blessing. This is not a burden. The second amazing descriptive truth about this call to serve is that the commandment is also from Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the very one who realized our salvation by the incredible life, death, and resurrection of his own physical life that was sacrificed for us in so many ways. Yes, the height of his physical pain was the crucifixion. But this is God, very God, who never slumbers, tires, or wearies, who had to sleep to function, who had to eat to have strength, who had to stop to use the restroom, who had to clothe himself, who for many years needed his mother to wipe him, to clean him, to bathe him. The sacrifices God, very God, made by stepping down from heaven to become a human being, the sacrifices, the physical sacrifices go well beyond just the crucifixion. Every step, every blister, every rock in his sandal, those were things that he never experienced before from eternity past. And yet he died for us. And then he came and gave us the word. He instructs us. He sent his helper. He continues to allow us to serve him and worship him and know him. Do you see the privilege of following this individual, of serving this individual? Do you enjoy the calling? Do you understand the beauty of it all? Or has the world and your desire for comfort and for success clouded your understanding of why you are even here on earth in the first place? To the point that ministry is put on the shelf with all your other worldly activities, pursuits, and accomplishments. What is it this hour? Well, it's money. Well, let's some time for family. Well, got to do some God time. Or is that the shelf on which everything else rests? That you learn to do everything, even your fun, even your vacationing, even your purchases, especially your marriage and your family, 
especially how you interact with coworkers. Yes, in that dark workplace you work at. All for the glory of God. You are called to serve. Yes, the church. Yes, these sinners like me. But primarily, you are called to serve God Himself and you are called to serve by God Himself. Your Savior. Your Creator. This is the commission. And if you think there is any greater privilege, whatever that is, whatever it is that you just say, if I could just get that, you know full well that there's something else, but we all have that one thing for now. That raise, buy a house, have a child, find someone to marry. The joy that you can imagine in the Lord granting you those things pales in comparison to being called by God to serve. And when you recognize that, and when you live like that, then, on a very practical level, you will not say, I got the house, and I got the spouse. But pastor, we need counseling. Because you're putting God and service first as the foundation of where and why and what you can afford when you purchase those things. Why you marry that person. Yes, friends, she needs to be cute. She has to have a good personality. She needs to have the same sense of humor or at least think you're kind of funny. You are going to wake up next to that man or woman every day for the rest of your life. Hair disheveled, no makeup, no fake eyelashes, no fancy dresses, burping, farting, snoring, whatever it is, right? But the reality is, if you say, yes, I want to find someone I'm attracted to, of course. Yes, I want to find someone I get along with, of course. But will dating and marrying this person make me a better Christian? Friends, if you've been dating one, two, three, four, five years and you do not have spiritual conversations, if your girlfriend or boyfriend are afraid to confront you on sin, don't you dare think that's going to suddenly start because you say, I do. I have spoken to men who say, I have found the one. I am in love. As soon as I finish seminary next year, I'm going to marry her. And I say, does she make you a better Christian? And they say, I never thought of that. She's a small group leader. She makes others grow in their walk. She strengthens others. But you, does she challenge you? And here's my point as I pull myself back in from that incredibly long tangent. When we have the right mindset of just service to the Lord and honoring God in all things, we will all make better decisions for God's glory. Look, I'm not trying to shame people who want or need marriage counseling. That's a good thing. Frankly, we all need a little bit of it. 
But I think you get my point. Things will not be perfect, but things will be better because you, are, you have prioritized God. You are called to serve by Him. And when we talk about all that Jesus has done for us, we don't just look back at our salvation as a motivation to push us. Like we're going through old pictures. Oh, remember that. Oh, look at, look at what I look like on my wedding day, man. I need to get to the gym. And sometimes we do that. We look back and say, oh, Jesus saved me back then. I really need to get my act together. I need to press on more. But the reality is, in Jesus Christ, we have hope. And that is an ongoing motivation. It is involving all that He is doing still today. And that leads us to our third fact to remember to encourage you to fulfill your ministry, the confidence. The confidence in the phrase, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Christ sustains us in our service to Him throughout our lives. And when we consider that He is our hope, We tend to think of His second coming, and rightly so, but this means more than that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. If you've been with us for many months... Your Bible's probably a little worn down in James. Just turn a few pages ahead of that, right before James is Hebrews. Let me read for you chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. It is, uh, it is very much appreciated and agreed upon that Hebrews is a more complicated book, and in large part is because it is written to a Hebrew Jewish audience. And so it's okay if there's some things here you don't get. I don't have time to explain it all, but let's focus on the hope. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. A major theme in the book of Hebrews is Jesus as our faithful high priest, taking that picture. Again, this is, this is being written to Jews, So they would understand that behind a veil, behind a curtain, only on certain days, the high priest could go in there to fellowship directly with God. With Jesus Christ, the veil was torn in two. All Christians have access to the throne of God. You do it every every time that you pray, every time that you worship Him. But in that Jewish mindset, he's saying our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is our permanent high priest because the Old Testament high priest would die because they were human. But Jesus is our permanent high priest. We don't need to sign one anymore to make sacrifice, sacrifices to go beyond the veil. Jesus is always there at the throne of God the Father. And here, we also see that because of that, we have hope in Him constantly. He is referred to as the anchor of the soul. And in context, this is talking about Jesus fulfilling 
all of the promises that he made. Yes, that includes that he will return, but it is not limited to that. Everything that he has promised, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. All of those promises of sustaining, watching over, blessing, helping, interceding, all of the things that are happening at this very moment as I preach and you listen. This is part of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And this hope is in the world, it is in the church, it is in your life right now. The blessings He has designed for mankind and specifically for His followers. And to summarize, our hope is centered on Jesus Christ. And this focus for the believer is a result of regeneration. It is a hope that we have. This focus on Jesus Christ as our hope we have immediately when we are saved. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living because it's in us, living because Jesus is still alive. The second coming and eternity are, of course, the manifestation of this hope, but we are every day, every day, given a foretaste of what is to come in our walks with Him today. As we live out our lives today, we are given a foretaste of heaven. And you say, Pastor, look around. Sure doesn't look like a preview of heaven. But here's the thing. A preview of heaven is not in the world. It is in us. And most clearly, when we serve. And so, as you fulfill your ministry, look to Jesus and understand that the hope that you have in Christ as He works in and through you is what is to keep you going Not the human accolades, not the growth of the church, not your own sense of obligation or accomplishment. Jesus Christ. He is our hope. That is the confidence that He has, He is, and He will fulfill His promises. Fact number four the connection. The connection. We're looking at five facts to remember, to encourage you to fulfill your ministry, the connection, the first half of verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Paul refers back to Timothy with the term of family affection. And before I unpack that for you, I want to tell you a little bit about who Timothy is. Timothy's mother, Eunice, and grandmother, Lois, were Jews who converted to Christianity. They are mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, as those with, quote, sincere faith. It's generally agreed upon that Timothy was led to the Lord by Paul 
on Paul's first missionary journey when he was in Lystra. In Acts 14, we can read about that because that is where Timothy was. That's where he was from. It's in Acts chapter 16 and verse 3 where Paul expresses his desire for Timothy to travel with him to join him on his missionary journeys. And we know that Timothy did. He traveled much with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys. We have some of it from Acts, but we also know that he was with Paul because in many of the epistles that were written throughout uh, Paul's travels, he said, I greet you along with Timothy, meaning Timothy is with me. According to Acts 17.15, he was with Paul in Athens. Then in Acts 18, he was with Paul in Corinth. The letters where he is mentioned, so we know Timothy was with him, are 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Timothy traveled a lot with Paul. We also know that Paul also frequently sent Timothy as his representative to various churches when he himself could not go. We read in 1 Corinthians 4.17, I have sent you Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 3.2, we sent Timothy. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. Now these were all temporary assignments. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, we learn that Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus for a longer-term assignment to pastor the Ephesian church. Now, by the time 1 Timothy is written, Timothy has been Paul's ministry and traveling companion, as I mentioned earlier, for 15 years. Now, let's get back to the context of 1 Timothy 1. By referring to Timothy as his true child in the faith, we know that Paul is speaking metaphorically. He is not Paul's biological son. This is a spiritual relationship that he's referring to. First, there's, this is clearly a form of paternal love that Paul is addressing Timothy with. There is a clear trust and affection between the two. That's why you will often, well, not often, but sometimes you will hear someone refer to someone that has led them to the Lord or has discipled them and says, he is, I am his Timothy. That's the idea here. It's from this relationship. And the fact that he is described as a true child in the faith tells us that Paul has no doubts about Timothy's integrity or his spiritual character, which should have been obvious to us when we found out that he left Timothy to pastor a difficult church. The word true, meaning genuine, legitimate, in fact, in keeping with the analogy in reference to biological children, that word true that he uses here, true child in the faith, was used uh, physically, biologically, of a child that was born to a man and a woman who were in a legal marriage relationship, so a legitimate child. So that's Timothy. And as we work our way through the, the book will gain much more insight into the kind of man that Timothy was. But for us, on a broader scale, we understand that Timothy is ultimately a faithful child of God. There is a motivation for us in our ministry because we too are children of God. We have a connection, not directly to Paul as Timothy had, but to the Lord himself and all other believers who have ever lived. And secondarily, we have a connection to 
the family of God, especially that exists today that we interact with, this local church. It is those same people that we are to serve and serve alongside. It is our connection to them and God that should serve as an encouragement to step up and fulfill your ministry. I believe that in many ways that is something that helps us to say, well, we don't need to serve. Because we look at a church like this that is average size for America, relatively small for the Bay Area, especially from some of the churches you have come from, some of the mega churches in San Francisco. But we don't own a building that we need to upkeep. We don't have a, a, a dozen different ministries. We're getting there. And you say, well, there's the elder, there's the deacons, there's the small group leaders. I don't, there's not much for me to do. I don't need to serve. But you need to take that thinking and reverse it and look around you. Because when we talk about fulfilling your ministry, it's first and foremost the one another's. Now, we, I often get questions, what does that mean? What are the one another's? Just an old church term, and it comes from all the commands in the New Testament that start with or end with the phrase one another. Love one another. Admonish one another. Serve one another. Sharpen one another. Encourage one another. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with coming on a Sunday morning and say, where's my name tag? Where's my position? Where do I go? It's praying. It's talking. It's building relationships, encouraging, sharpening, and receiving that service as well. So look around. Then look to God. This is a connection. These are connections we have that serve as encouragements to ministry. Well, fifthly, the character. We've seen the commander, the commission, the confidence, the connection, and finally the character. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So clearly it's not our character that serves as motivation for ministry, but the character of the one whom we serve. Here Paul uses the same greeting that he uses in all 13 of his New Testament letters. All of them saying grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some just say grace and peace and then in the following verses mention God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In First and Second Timothy, he adds mercy. And though a repeated greeting for Paul, the statement is rich and dripping with theology. Real quickly, because these terms are familiar to most of us, grace is that wonderfully powerful one-word summary of Christ's saving work. Grace stresses the free gift of eternal life to those who are undeserving sinners. It is a gift in the truest sense of the word. We didn't earn it. It is often referred to as unmerited favor. And the result of God's grace is forgiveness and the freedom from the consequences of sin along with freedom from sin itself. Mercy. Mercy can be translated compassion or pity. It takes into account the misery pain and distress which results from sin and is that which removes such misery. In salvation, this act of pity from God to us 
is a result of His gracious character. But mercy, we must remember, is a faithful, unchanging characteristic of God as well. And the result of His mercy is the withholding of the wrath and punishment that our failures deserve. And this frees us from the misery that sin brings. The misery that when we were enslaved to it, we did not even recognize. But do you see, logically, that that's why sin is a rabbit hole? People don't realize they're miserable, but they are. And to cover that misery, they delve deeper into the very sin that is causing the misery. Remove the guilt by adding the tally marks of those you have been with overnight. Go from this drug to that drug to this drug. Go from a beer at 5 o'clock to harder liquor to shots to whatever it is. We go deeper and deeper. I'm not happy. I have misery. They don't recognize that they're miserable because their life revolves around work and money which in turn revolves around neglecting their family. And so they say, it must be because I'm not here yet. And so they put in more. They search for higher paying jobs. They delve deeper. And the misery just grows. And people say, I'm not enslaved to my sin. Yes, you are. But as believers, we have been recipients of God's mercy and we're freed from all of that nonsense. The result of grace and mercy is peace. Peace has two meanings in the Scriptures. According to the context, we know it's one or the other. In this context, as a greeting, we can simply say that he is referring to both. The first is an objective peace. Peace as in the opposite of war. Because of God's grace and mercy, we are no longer at war with Him, but we have peace with God. The second is that subjective, peaceful feeling, a tranquility of the soul because of the objective relationship Christians now have with God as those who are no longer enslaved to sin and in the crosshairs of His wrath. So because of that objective peace, no longer at war with God, we now have subjective peace. Sure, we worry, we get anxious, but when we look back and say, I'm forgiven, God's in control, He loves me, He cares about me, He's working out whatever the source of this anxiety is for the good of those who love Him, and that's me, that's you, then you can sit back and go, I'm at peace, okay? It is not block everything out, Mm, you know, it is actually a deep, hard thinking about what God has done and your position in Jesus Christ. Grace and mercy involve objective peace that leads to subjective peace. Now, all three of these, grace, mercy, peace, are necessary, not just at the moment of salvation, but throughout the Christian life. And notice, the source of these are both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
By the way, in just the first sentence of this letter, Paul has already twice told us. I know there's no question for the, um, about this for any of you. But when you address those who do, just in the passing reference, twice in one sentence, he has told us that God the Father and Jesus Christ are equal. Well, five facts to remember to encourage you to fulfill your ministry, the commander, the commission, the confidence, the connection, and the character. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If history is any indication, about half of you in this room, in about and in a few hours, you will receive an email in your inbox from Pam. And that is because you have signed up for the small group email. Many of you don't attend small group, but you want the questions. I write questions as review of the sermon and then discussion questions to apply the sermon. Even if you don't plan to attend a small group, I encourage you to repent and go to a small group. But get on the email list because you will still will have the information in case you want to jump in. This is not a, what are you doing here? You didn't sign up. This is just, oh, glad you're here. Uh, you know, this is not like something where you, you missed the first year. Sorry, closed. Just come whenever you want. But also, the questions, if you just received the emails, I believe will help you think deeper in how to apply these truths. Service is so foundational and is so important to your Christian obedience and to the church, I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done before. I'm going to read for you what the discussion questions are going to be for this week so that those of you who don't receive the questions will have something to chew on and think about. I'm going to read them really fast so you're going to have to get the emails. No, I'll read them slowly, but here we go. Do you think you are ministering or serving the church to the best of your abilities? What keeps you from serving or serving more? What discouragement have you faced in ministry? Number three, service in the church involves ministering to other Christians. In doing this, we can often only look at others rather than Christ. How can you develop a greater focus on our commander, Jesus Christ, in the daily affairs of ministry? Number four, how can you cultivate a heart that responds to the call to service by God in the same way you would respond to a royal decree or an assignment from your employer? Think about that. We jump when our boss says we have to do something because we think we have to do it. How do we take the same motivation and commitment we give to our human bosses and give it to the Lord? Question number five. What wrong motivations do you have to serve? And how can you train your heart to be motivated by the hope you have in Christ? Number six. 
as we are all sinners, people are often, ironically, the most difficult part of ministry. How can that difficulty be turned into motivation? Here's a clue. People are difficult because they're sinners. And sinners need help. And finally, we had grace, mercy, and peace, but what other attributes of God help you in fulfilling your ministry? Whether it's our small group questions or other questions you have yourself to challenge yourself, I encourage you to not see sermons as a show. The lights go up, you walk out, that was good, that was entertaining, let's move on. But to dwell on it, to think about it, not because of what I've said, because of what God has said that I've just tried to help you understand better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing privilege of serving, not just because we get to serve others with an objective standard of morality and good, but because you, have, you yourself have called us, that you have given us the instruction, and that you have put us among people who have that same calling. Help us to serve one another with humility, with grace, with love, but ultimately out of a desire to honor you. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that serves one another relentlessly, tirelessly, sacrificially. Thank you for what you have taught us just in the models of Paul and Timothy and even their relationship. Thank you for all you did in the life of our church through James, and I pray that you would do that and much more through 1 Timothy in the weeks and months to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close.